Welcome to the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This show is dedicated to helping you become a better writer. Following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years of experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are three of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Anne Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Valerie Francis is at an awesome seminar this week, and we are all jealous of her. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global fool's cap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. This week, we're marching into the 2014 society historical movie, Selma, screenplay by Paul Webb and directed by Ava DuVernay. Here's a synopsis that I adopted from history.com. Even after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 forbid discrimination in voting on the basis of race, efforts by civil rights organizations such as the Southern Christian Leadership Council and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to register black voters met with fierce resistance in southern states such as Alabama. In early 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. and SCLC decided to make Selma, located in Dallas County, Alabama, the focus of a black voter registration campaign. King had won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, and his profile would draw international attention to the events that followed. Alabama Governor George Wallace was a notorious opponent of desegregation, and the local county sheriff in Dallas County had led a steadfast opposition to black voter registration drives. As a result, only 2% of Selma's eligible black voters, 300 out of 15,000, had managed to register to vote. The Selma to Montgomery March was part of a series of civil rights protests that occurred in 1965 in Alabama, a southern state with deeply entrenched racist policies. In March of that year, in an effort to register black voters in the South, protesters marched the 54-mile route from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery, were confronted with deadly violence from local authorities and white vigilante groups. As the world watched the protesters under the protection of the federalized National Guard troops, they finally achieved their goal, walking round the clock for three days to reach Montgomery. The historic march and Martin Luther King Jr.'s participation in it raised awareness of the difficulties faced by black voters and the need for a National Voting Rights Act. So this is part of American history that's not only, it's probably, what, 60 years ago, roughly. Uh, so it's very new. Um, and we all know from any kind of uh, American history, the, the, the challenges and struggles that uh, minorities had in the South, particularly African-Americans, to get their rights, even after slavery was abolished and even after a lot of these uh, laws were passed. So the first thing we're going to take a look at, which I get to do today, is the global genre. And this is a society story. Uh, and a society story is a mini plot with multiple characters and external genre that, that culminates in the revolutionary event when power shifts from one segment of the social order to another. Society stories, like war stories, usually tightly confined story trajectories, sorry, in sharp focused subgenres to represent global social power struggles. So all any society story, no matter if it's historical, if it's political, if it's dystopian or whatever you want to put in, there has to be a 
world that someone's being oppressed in, and it has to be very well defined. But the the other thing to realize is even in an epic society story like this one, there has to be deeply personal and specific human conflict. And usually that is between the protagonist and the people that are surrounding them and the antagonist that's trying to get rid of whatever the protagonist is trying to fight for. So in this particular one, historical society stories are often done to give a glimpse into how events change the world. So we all know what happened in Selma. It's part of American history, but we don't know the details. We don't know the nitty gritty. We don't know the interpersonal dynamics. We don't know how MLK felt. We don't know how Coretta Scott King felt. We don't know all those dynamics. And so as readers and watchers of these types of stories, we want to connect with the struggles of multiple characters and find a piece of ourselves in each one of them as they navigate the maze of struggle to kind of overcome clear injustice. And Selma, the the town that this is set in, is like the perfect place for an uprising. And there's part of the movie where even MLK says, no, this is the place we stand. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. In terms of the internal genre, for a lot of these society stories, it's a morality testing plot. The main protagonist in this is is Martin Luther King, and he has very he's a lot of tests in this, and it must have been a real struggle for him to figure out how to navigate all this because he had President Johnson and his group, and he's trying to figure out how to navigate a clearly complex and tense situation. So that is also what people really love about these things is like the internal struggle, the temptations that he was under to try to figure out the right thing to do. And it's just brilliantly played by, by David Oyelo. As a society story, I mean, MLK is probably one of the best orators in wordsmiths, I mean, in the history of the world. Uh, and David Oyelo uh, just nails him. He even sounds like him. He's poetic. Uh, and, The other thing about society stories, which we'll talk about later, is you really have to weave what is this world like? People need to know how bad it is. People need to know why you need to rise up. And the first scene where Oprah is trying to register to vote is just like, boy, this is not going to go well. It was just a brilliant movie and a sad part of American history, which we never should forget and continue to strive to do better and be better. I mean, I think it's relevant today as it was the movement back in 1965. Shari, as you mentioned, there's a lot of testing going on in this story. And so it's no surprise that the internal genre is morality, testing, triumph. And we've talked about Friedman's cause and effect statements before, which Kim Kessler and I talk about in a blog post on internal genres that we'll share in the show notes. So when a protagonist of highly developed will and sophistication experiences a challenge and trial, but maintains their inner moral compass and strength of will, they make a selfless choice and earn respect and admiration. So this is such a great choice for the internal genre in a society story, because generally speaking, the tyrants are attempting to beat back the revolution by co-opting the leaders of the underrepresented class. So 
Dr. King is tested repeatedly, particularly by the president, but also by Jim Crow proponents like Sheriff Clark and Governor Wallace and through violence and the threat of violence. But also he's tested by his concerns for his family's safety and the safety of the people in the movement. I'll talk more about this in the point of view section, but the testing plot naturally leads to a behind the scenes look at these major historical events because we need to see the moments when MLK was vulnerable and who and what tested his faith and willingness to stay the course. So leaders of movements, they're human, they have human failings, and sometimes they give up. It's all the more important to tell testing triumph stories, to give current leaders and followers the courage to continue and do the right thing. Yeah, I, that's spot on. And, and with that, Leslie, why don't you take us through the beginning hook, the middle build, and the ending payoff? All right. So for the beginning hook, we have... In the same year, Dr. King receives the Nobel Peace Prize for his nonviolent approach to seeking civil rights for African Americans. Klansmen in Birmingham murder four young girls, and Alice Lee Cooper is denied the right to vote in Selma. But when President Johnson refuses to help secure the voting rights in Alabama, Dr. King must decide whether to leave his family to lead efforts in Selma or stay home. He goes to Selma with other members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. For the middle build, Dr. King speaks to a crowd in Selma to encourage them to protest to guarantee voting rights for African Americans in Alabama. And during a first attempt to march from Selma to Montgomery, troopers attack the marchers, which shocks the American public and brings white clergymen to Selma in answer to Dr. King's call. But during a second march, when the troopers stand aside, Dr. King must decide whether to go forward. He stops the march because he's worried that the people are being led into a a trap and faces criticism for his choice. In the ending payoff, Klansmen kill a white minister in Selma, which shocks the American public again, and President Johnson initially refuses to act on behalf of African Americans. But when political pressure forces Johnson to announce his forthcoming Voting Rights Act, Dr. King must decide whether to attempt the march a third time. He leads the march, and the people make it peacefully to Montgomery. One additional point I want to make about a society story and the inciting incident that kicks off the action is that it's either a speech by a visionary or a crime. And here we have both. We have Dr. King's speech when he's accepting the Nobel Prize, but we also have the murder of the four young girls and the church bombing. So we have a doubly powerful opening for the story. Totally. I mean, that's what I was talking about those first two minutes. So well played, too. Next up is the obligatory scenes and conventions. Kim, why don't you take us through that? Okay, thanks. So the first obligatory scene of a society story is an inciting threat to reigning power, which Leslie mentioned. So here... You know, we have the main inciting incident is the crime of the four young girls are killed in the church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. And 
what I was looking at when we have Dr. King accepting his peace prize that we've already achieved the civil rights act and he, you know, accepts his prize. And so it was almost in this case, it was interesting because that kind of sets Dr. King and the movement for civil rights up as the power. Um, that's kind of like the status quo. I mean, it's weird to say, but it's kind of like establishing the status quo, at least for this specific story framing um, that we're, we're on our way, we're achieving things and we have the civil rights and we have, you know, Dr. King's winning the Nobel Peace Prize and, and that kind of thing. And then the attack to that power that is on its way is this bombing in in Birmingham, Alabama. And so, you know, having white supremacists trying to stop that momentum and act with hate to try to end that power that Dr. King and the civil rights movement is currently achieving. And so so it was just interesting as I was watching it, and I, I had this in mind as we were starting the film about, okay, well, there's going to be an inciting threat to reigning power. So which power is the movie going to set up as currently reigning? And so I thought it was interesting the way that they framed that, that they put him receiving his award first as like, oh, check it out. We have this, you know, we're gaining some power. We're gaining some international momentum, you know, and, and international recognition. And then we follow that up with the crime. So it's just an interesting thing. So when you're writing your own society story, be thinking about how you are establishing power at the beginning so that you can have an inciting you know, threat to that. When we did Dead Poet Society, it was the opposite, where the reigning power was established by the parents and by the school leaders that were setting up. We have this very strict system. It's about achievement. And it was very clear that there was this was a lot of oppression happening to the students uh, about doing the right thing, you know, according to what the parents and the you know faculty say. And then you have Mr. Keating come in with his visionary speech about seizing the day and you know making the most of your life. And so again, it's important to set up the reigning power so that you can have an inciting incident that comes after, whether that inciting incident is a visionary speech or a crime. I would agree, Kim, that. When they opened with uh, King's speech to the Nobel Prize ceremony, I felt like that established that was the threat to reigning power. When an African-American man has the eyes of the world on him in one of the most powerful positions that a person can have, that gave him access to the president and everything. He's a Nobel laureate. Now, that, to my mind, was the threat to the reigning power. Yeah, Yep. And Leslie pointed out that it's a double, you know, a double inciting incident. And so I just thought it was interesting because I was looking for it and I was like, oh, here's a visionary speech. And I'm like, oh, but here's a crime. I guess in that regard, if you look at it as if the visionary speech is the inciting incident, then the attack in Birmingham is almost that it's a lashing out against, you know, the the uprising. So And it yeah. works both ways. It, it works absolutely both ways. works both yeah. ways. It's very rich that way. Our second obligatory scene is the protagonists deny responsibility to respond. So Dr. King visits President Johnson at the White House to speak with him on the denial of voting rights in Alabama and across the South. But President Johnson says that his war on poverty is the priority, not this voting thing, because the war on poverty would apply to all races, and that's where he's wanting to go with it. And it's a really interesting because uh, before Dr. King comes in the room, he's talking to his president. Johnson's talking to his aide, and he says, you know, 
aren't we done with this? Like, didn't we get him what he wanted with the 1964 Civil Rights Act? Like, aren't we done? Like, why is he here? Why are we talking to him again? And just wanting it to all, I signed the thing. I want you to go away. And he's thinking he did enough. And now he's back. Oh, what do you know? Asking for more. So President Johnson says he's going to set this aside for a while. I understand it's important, but we're going to set this aside. And Dr. King clearly explains why it cannot wait. Thousands of racially motivated murders happen in the South and not one conviction due to white judges and white juries. And the only way to be a jury member is if you are registered to vote but the white leaders are blocking black voters from registering. So that was such a a powerful scene and such a powerful shift in the scene. You could really feel the scene shift when Dr. King explains, I mean, it's, it seems ridiculous that you have to explain why your right to vote needs to be justified. Right. Like, but it was very powerful to say, this is, this is so much bigger than, than, you know, quote unquote, voting. This is about justice. This is about equality from one end to the other, that you don't just get to murder humans and not not have consequences. And this was a step toward power in, in all of those aspects. So I thought that was really, really amazing that, you know, in that scene, he's, Dr. King explains all of that. And then President Johnson still says, we're going to go ahead and set this aside for a while. And so I think that is you know, without having him really having Dr. King really lay that out as to how essential this is, you know, where there's no mistaking that President Johnson understands what's at stake here and yet still sets it aside. The next obligatory scene is forced to leave the ordinary world. The protagonists lash out according to their positions in the power hierarchy. So Dr. King leaves President Johnson's office and he says, Selma, it is. So he begins planning the march to the Selma courthouse and that they're going to take their stand and do a demonstration in protest to oppressed voting rights. And President Johnson meets with J. Edgar Hoover to discuss how to deal with Dr. King. And they decide it was very, very disturbing scene where J. Edgar Hoover insinuates to, you know, we can just take people out. We can just remove people um, in power that are bothering us. And then uh, President Johnson says, yes, I'm aware of that, but, you know, I don't want to do that. And so they decide to focus on his marriage and his family unit. And if they can disrupt the wife, as they say, um, they can disrupt Dr. King. And that is what we see that they that they do. The next obligatory scene is each character learns what the antagonist's object of desire is. Now, this one I had trouble with, and so I reached out to my roundtable peeps, and Anne was gracious enough to help me with this. So Anne pointed out, we have when Coretta gets on the phone, um, she gets these threatening phone calls about her children's lives, and also there's one where they're playing an apparent sex tape And Dr. King says, you know, that's not me. And she says, I know, I know what you sound like. And so there, there are these constant threats to their family and their home, which is exactly what we said, you know, seeing the characters lashing out. So this is J. Edgar Hoover's object of desire. He wants to be rid of, you know, Dr. King, you know, thinking him as a social degenerate and all of these things and, and trying to, you know, clear the way for them. So the family becomes very aware of what they're up against, that they're being targeted in this way. 
And also, Dr. King has these moments, very clear moments with President Johnson, that President Johnson just wants, he wants it to go away. He just wants everyone to be, can you just be satisfied? Can you just be happy? Can we all just, you know, like, why can't Governor Wallace just stop it? And why can't the protesters just stop it? And he just wants to play politics and he doesn't want to stand up and do the difficult but right thing. So President Johnson is, he's a stumbling block for the movement, but he also ends up being the key to it moving forward as well. So he represents the delaying aspect, which is a real antagonistic force. For every moment that he delays, people are harmed. And so he's the thing that's allowing it to continue with federal approval, essentially. Also, we have the character that Oprah plays. Um, It's about the third scene in the film where she is in Selma and she's going to register to vote and she fills out her form with perfect penmanship and she approaches the desk to turn it in. And we have this white clerk. He's a very angry man. And he makes her recite the con- the preamble of the constitution. He asks her how many county judges there are in Alabama to which she replies 67 and then he says name them so it's just this list upon list of requirements in order for you to be allowed to register to vote and she can't name the county judges and so she is red stamp denied so in that moment we as the audience as well as this character sees how much she's up against and that it doesn't really matter what you do or how much you perform or what, how high they raise the standard. They're going to keep raising it and you're never going to be able to meet it. And that is really what we're up against. That's what the antagonist wants is for you to owe, to lose hope, to, to lose hope. And then the last one, and you know, this is just the last example that I'll list here is toward the end of the, of the film, president Johnson meets with governor Wallace in his office and president Johnson asks him, why don't you just let them vote? And Wallace says, because they're never satisfied. First, they wanted, you know, they wanted us to end slavery. Then they wanted us, then they wanted to end segregation. Now they want the vote. Before you know it, they'll want to do, they'll want to, you know, own a home. And then they're going to want equal pay for work and on and on and on. And so to him, you know, and I think it's, it's so, uh, it's just one of those things that, you know, when you're watching the movie, well, it was made in 2014, but, you know, here we are watching it in 2018 and, it's so asinine to hear a character say like, well, yeah, then they're going to want all of the things that other people have automatically that, that white people have automatically. And, and so I thought that was a really, again, really well-crafted scene and well-crafted dialogue to illustrate exactly the kind of mentality that we're dealing with here in governor Wallace and in the forces against progress. And at that moment, President Johnson, that's where he really finally shifts his tune and says, you know, I'll be damned if I let history remember me the same as you. And that's, you know, really what shifts him into signing the Voting Rights Act. The next obligatory scene is the protagonist's initial strategy to outmaneuver the villain fails. So the initial march to the courthouse in Selma results in beatings Um, They're arrested. Then they try marching at night um, and there's more beatings and and there's a shooting and Jimmy Lee Jackson is killed. And then they march across the bridge and that results in beatings and tear gas and all that stuff. So they're trying to demonstrate 
and to protest, but they just keep being beaten down physically and it's weighing on their hope, you know, that's weighing on their motivation. And this is the thing that's really pushing that internal genre, that morality testing story for Dr. King is having to see all of their efforts be beaten back and people being harmed. So this leads us up to the protagonist realizing they must change their approach to turn the power tables, reaches, and all is lost moment. And I feel like Oftentimes, whether we're talking about the midpoint of a story or even here with the all is lost moment, it can sometimes feel like a sequence of scenes. And so I feel like this scene isn't necessarily maybe the complete all is lost moment personally for the internal genre. But as far as the society story, this felt like a real turn of events and an all is lost for the group as a whole. It's the moment when they're trying to cross the bridge And the troopers fall back out of the way of the marchers, giving them free path to walk down the street. Dr. King kneels to pray and then decides to turn the marchers around, not trusting the situation. And he's not willing to risk more harm to the people who put their faith in him to lead them. And so in this instance, it's realizing like demonstration in this moment without the legal backing of the court system, the president, you know, the National Guard for protection is not going to be the way to do it. Like we can't just march ourselves down there vulnerable and uncovered and unprotected. And so it feels like that's a moment when he realizes I'm not going to do it this way. We got to do it some other way. And then in the end, you know, they go to court and they they win the right to do it and all of these things so that they can march protected and with people on board with them. The revolution scene The core event of the society story, when the protagonist's gifts are expressed and power changes hands. This is the moment when the judge grants permission for the march to Montgomery, calling it a legal assembly, which was what the troopers were citing as a reason why they had to disperse and go back to their church because this on the road was not considered a legal assembly. And... Then it follows with President Johnson speaking to Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act. And, of course, they march safely to Montgomery Capitol um, with armed escorts. The final obligatory scene is the protagonists are rewarded at the extrapersonal, interpersonal, or personal level. And while the speech is playing, while Dr. King's speech is playing, um, they show the the names and um, the outcomes of the different characters and what they went on to do. You know, one went on to be a senator and this one went on to do this and that. And so we see that, we see those different levels of extra personal, interpersonal, and the personal level reward that they get for all of their efforts. Thanks, Kim. Now we'll go on to the conventions uh, with Anne. Yeah, the uh, first convention of a society story is that there is one central character with offshoot characters that embody a multitude of that main character's personality traits. Well, clearly here we have a big central figure in Martin Luther King Jr. He is surrounded by characters who represent all aspects of the civil rights issues of the 1960s. Uh, John Lewis, the young student at that time who is now um, in Congress and still active, is the next gen. He represents the next generation of nonviolent protesters and also Dr. King's youthful hopes. 
which are being tested during this story. He represents the optimistic side and the hopeful side. Uh, Coretta Scott King, his wife, represents the family life that suffers when a leader gives himself to a cause. I think President Johnson represents the class in power and the desire to compromise, go slow, hold back on real change. And of course, Governor Wallace represents the absolute tyranny and bigotry that dies hard. The next convention of the society story is a big canvas. Either it's a wide scope external setting or a big internal landscape. In this case, it's the big external wide scope setting. The story begins uh, with a Nobel Prize ceremony, presumably in Stockholm, and uh, moves to Georgia, Alabama, Washington, D.C., and we even see scenes of people around the country uh, watching the news as it unfolds. So it is a worldwide stage. The next convention is that there's a clear revolutionary point of no return. This is the moment when power shifts, and it must be clearly defined and dramatized. Now, we're getting into some areas where sometimes you got to look a little bit to really find that because the description is, you know, clearly defined and dramatized, and often it is defined and dramatized in a fairly quiet way. Here, there's a phone conversation between Dr. King and President Johnson following the murder of James Reeb. He was the white minister from Boston who was uh, murdered in the street by white supremacists. This happens at about one hour and 36 minutes in the movie. So President Johnson is continuing to weasel out of sending the Voting Rights Act to Congress, and he actually implies that his power and Dr. King's power are equal. He says, you think you're juggling? I'm juggling too. He tries to like make them seem equal and get sympathy that way. And King replies, I am a preacher from Atlanta. You are the man who won the presidency of the world's most powerful nation by the greatest landslide in history four months ago. And you are the man dismantling your own legacy with each passing day. No one will remember the Civil Rights Act, which actually turns out not to be true. They will remember you saying, wait, and I can't unless you act, sir. So we don't see the actual shift in power, but we Martin Luther King has taken power in that point by showing Johnson how weak he's being. But a few scenes later, we see Johnson deliver essentially the same speech to Governor Wallace and sort of pass that buck on. So he's learned something. The next uh, convention is that the vanquished are doomed to exile. Now, clearly the vanquished here are the, the bad guys. In the epilogue, we learn that the racist sheriff in Selma was overwhelmingly voted out of office for good by newly registered black voters, and that George Wallace ran twice for president and failed both times, and uh, never his political career was ended by a bullet, basically, but certainly he did not win. He could not win the public's approval enough to run for president successfully. Next uh, convention, second to last, is the power divide between those in power and those disenfranchised is large. Disenfranchised is literal here. They do not have the voting franchise. The divide rarely gets bigger than this in in a society story. It's demonstrated throughout the movie, um, most eloquently, I think, in two places. The first scene is where Annie Lee Cooper, who is the Oprah Winfrey character, tries to register to vote, as Kim has described, and is denied her right by this petty racist bureaucrat. Um, she, this little nothing guy has the power to deny her a basic right. And then also during the first march ac- across the bridge in Selma, when state troopers chase the marchers down, they've got guns, they've got horses, they've got whips, they've got clubs, they've got gas. 
this is there's no greater representation of a power divide than people being chased down like animals by another group of people. And then more subtle and really sinister is the scene where J. Edgar Hoover he makes this veiled hint to President Johnson that we could just get rid of the guy. That's how much power they have. So the ironic win but lose, lose but win ending, which is a convention in many genres, is and I don't think we're calling it ironic anymore so much as maybe paradoxical. I think we have some quibbles with the word ironic, which we could maybe discuss at a later time. Here, victory is gained at the cost of many lives. Of course, we know that Martin Luther King Jr. himself was assassinated less than three years later or about three years later. And although it lies outside the actual story on the screen, the audience in 2014 and now in 2018, knew that the victory was only partial and that police violence towards African-Americans remains a major American problem. And racism does not end with a bill, a march, or a speech, no matter how great the speech is. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was very eloquently put. It's uh, it, it's just something in society stories that I just wanted to emphasize. And, and you nailed it with the power divide and and how the whole world is done. Uh, you need to show how bad it is. Um, and there was actually, a, I think, a podcast Leslie had uh, like last week where you're talking about even in a dystopian society novel or story without defining the world, then you don't know what the protagonist is rebelling against. And there has to be a clear... Uh, this is how bad it is. And in, in this movie, it is done perfectly. Um, and, and, you know, as you said, Anne, it's still, the struggle still is today. So, Leslie, what about the point of view and narrative device? I'm so glad you asked, Jari. The point of view and narrative device, I, I want you to keep in mind that this includes the type of information that we get the objectivity or subjectivity. And, and you can think about this as a lens, meaning the person, the narrator, the author, but also our distance in time and space from the events and the purpose for telling the stories. Now, they aren't always explicitly stated or shown, but we as writers really need to be clear about these elements and it will help tremendously in writing scenes. So we start the story, the very first scene is this intimate moment between husband and wife. So we know that this story is about Dr. King's private life as well as his public life. And so it tells us we're getting a behind the scenes look at these major historical events. We see other scenes like this, this the scene with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference meeting at the home of Richie Jean Jackson. Uh, we see where Dr. King is talking with Abernathy in the jail and has these moments of doubt. And of course, sometimes we get information from wiretap logs. And again, we get that right from the start of the story. And you can see how this is supporting the idea that the tyrants are not going to go without a big fight. And then finally, we get, we're get we getting these news reports from the New York Times reporter. 
And these are all great devices to use in a film where you want to provide different points of view, uh, especially in a historical society story like this one. And you can adapt all of these tricks for purposes of a novel as well. Those are um, epistolary devices, I think, aren't they? The news reporters, things like television reports, and also even the crawl across the screen of the FBI wiretap logs. Those are what we what we would call epistolary devices, and they can be used to great effect in a in a written story. I also wanted to just point out that the the crawls across the screen from the FBI saying date time King comes home to his family and really creepy, like we're watching you really closely. It creates a kind of dramatic irony for, for a little while in the film because we as the audience now know something that we assume the characters don't know, which is that they're being wiretapped and spied on. And then that shifts in the scene where, um, I think it's in the jail, where Dr. King and his one, I think it was Orange that he's talking to, says, yeah, you know we're being wiretapped, right? And they both kind of laugh ruefully because of course they know. And suddenly we, we and the characters, the heroes share a kind of dramatic nee, 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 nee with, uh, against Hoover who might not know that they know. And it's a, it's a wonderful, it's almost humorous. And it's a really nice little moment in the story, switching dramatic ironies out, I guess you'd call it. It'd be a fun thing to try uh, in another kind of story. Yeah. And, and it's just like creepy, <laughs> you know, because, you know, those are the real logs. They're, they have to be because yep. they're just they're so straight from the FOIA, FOIA request, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And so I'm sure they knew it all along. It's just, wow. <sighs> yeah. Like, they really wanted to suppress this movement. And the, the logs specifically reflect uh, a great deal, very subtly, about the attitudes. Yes. And not just the fact that they're being wiretapped, but the way they refer to these people very disrespectfully yes. in the notes. It's, it's, it conveys a huge amount of information in a very small number of words. Very it's, effective. Yeah. It, just, it, it also adds to what the society was like during the time. Uh, so next up is the objects of desire, which are the wants and needs. Kim, what do you have for that? So Dr. King, his want is, this is the external object of desire. So here in a society story, Dr. King wants to secure unrestricted voting rights for people of color, not only for the right to vote itself, but as a step towards justice for the thousands of racially motivated murders that go unconvicted due to all white juries. So that's this external want specifically in, in the movie Selma that we're looking at, getting that voter Rights Act passed. Now, the need points to the internal genre. And here, as we mentioned, it's a morality testing plot, a testing triumph plot. And so here, Dr. King's need is to maintain his faith and will to see this battle through, to not be overcome with anguish at the losses, but to leverage it as fuel to lead the people to triumph. So one of my favorite lines from this movie is when Dr. King and John Lewis, the student leader from SNCC, they go for a drive. And this is really what I would call Dr. King's Dark Knight of the Soul moment, where he's really, his, the testing is really weighing on him. And I love it because John Lewis recites Dr. King's own words back to him the first time that John Lewis had ever seen Dr. King speak. And he, he says that you, he says the word triumph 
in that line. He talks about, you know, that you would lead us to triumph. And it was beautiful to see that. And I found that really often there's sometimes there's these really distinct words that get brought into stories that I'm, I doubt that the writers of this film know that they're writing a morality testing triumph story, or at least in those terms, right? Those are our story grid terms. But yet those themes, they're so, you know, they apply to everyone and we all have these these things found in us. So just even the word triumph coming through, it really nailed what that internal genre was. So those are the wants and needs. Thanks, Kim. Uh, so the next one, number six, is what is the controlling idea and theme? Anne, why don't you take us through that? Okay. Well, the baseline controlling idea of a society story can be either positive or negative. And the positive sort of generic controlling idea is we gain power when we expose the hypocrisy of tyrants. And the negative is tyrants beat back revolutions by co-opting the leaders of the underclass. Selma is a positive society story of one of the great leaders and orators of history. So I have crafted this controlling idea. Oppressed people gain their rights when a moral and eloquent individual holds to his principles in the face of tyrannical pressure and inspires them to nonviolent action. Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. That's, uh, yeah, perfectly said. I think, uh, you know, like, like we've been talking throughout this entire uh, podcast about society stories, uh, you know, that is the essence of all, well, all society stories are about disrupting the status quo because of some oppression, or at least attempting. You either succeed or you don't succeed. And um, again, this one succeeded in one way, and now we're continuing to try to live the legacy. So great. That's, that's uh, you, you could have said that at a at a, at a, at a church revival. <laughs> it went over great. So, <laughs> well, I don't know great. about that, but it does seem very clear to me that the movie, I mean, it's obvious from history that uh, oratory was one of the great talents that he had, but the movie chose to really emphasize how critically important that component was to the overall triumph and the overall controlling idea of the story talk about it, use your words, be nonviolent. Those were such important ideas in the movie. You know, if you're ever going to write a speech for someone, <laughs> you know, you get half as good as uh, Dr. King, you're, you're in the right yeah, ballpark. Talk I mean, about some just, masterworks that you could study. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that there's actually a TED Talk um, where, and I'll, I will find the link and we'll put it in the show notes, but there's actually a TED Talk where a woman breaks down one of Dr. King's speeches and shows the pattern that he uses in it. And it's f absolutely fascinating and marvelous. So we will put that in the show notes for those of you who want to study it as a masterwork. Yeah, yes, because sure. breaking down masterworks is what we are all about here at the Roundtable Podcast. <laughs> yes, I didn't notice. That's what we do on this, on this podcast. So um, yeah, next up is one of our favorite parts of the show, which is the good examples, scene types, tropes, clear tie-ins to other genres. Uh, and, and for me, uh, there's two. There's when uh, MLK is meeting with President Johnson, and he basically lays out the speech in praise of the villain. I mean, it's just everything that's wrong. Even when Johnson thinks he did, he's like, well, I, I passed this bill. And he's like, it's not enough. And then the other one we talked about before is the ticker, uh, the, the FBI surveillance. I mean, it just sets the tone even more and more. And 
they wanted to oppress the rebellion. And that's what you need in, in one of these types of society stories. Really know what you're up against. And you're up against the full full might and power of the U.S. government. I wanted to mention that the director, Ava DuVernay, was criticized for the way that President Johnson is portrayed. And, you know, I can't say whether it's accurate or not, um, but I can say that Selma is a well-crafted story that shares the deeper truth and meaning of what happened during those times. Now, these are historic events, but no one is claiming that this is a documentary. And I mentioned when we talked about The Hurt Locker that, that stories aren't real life and some of what is historically true or precisely accurate must give way to telling the story, even when we have a biopic. I would be cautious about playing fast and loose with the facts about real people or events, but I encourage you as writers to tell the greater truth about life. And as an aside, I want to say that goodness knows people of privilege, such as President Johnson, have been permitted to tell their stories and to suit their image and agenda and bend the facts to that goal. People who disagree with the way that Johnson or Dr. King or anyone else in the film is depicted are free to tell their own story. So I would urge you that you can bend the facts a little for your art. I appreciate the irony also that of the activists in this story who were seeking to secure voting rights because there were moments in the story when when people, even within the movement, are trying to subvert voting or whether official or unofficial. And a great example of, z- of this is in Selma when John Lewis of, of SNCC makes the point that the people of Selma chose Dr. King and that and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to help them, and that James Foreman, his fellow SNCC leader, ought to respect that choice. I agree that that was an interesting piece of irony, and also I felt that that might have been an example of uh, protagonists sort of sidestepping their responsibility to respond, with James Foreman playing a small role as a kind of protagonist. He's, He's putting on the brakes and saying, no, 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 we don't want that. We want to do it our old way. We want to focus on Selma and not on the larger picture and so forth. So that that just to go back to uh, one of the uh, obligatory scenes that that struck me as a possible uh, candidate for the denial of responsibility on the part of the protagonists. I completely agree that this is a well-crafted and inspiring story and I loved watching it and I was just in a mess of tears, but because it looks at relatively recent historical events that are well within living memory. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember these things in my life. The screenwriter wisely chose to, preference real facts over sheer story structure in a couple of spots that I think if it were pure fiction and you were just making up a story about a revolution, I I might have advised against. And I'm thinking primarily of the three separate Selma marches. The first one is very dramatic and violent, and it happens at the beginning of the middle build when the state troopers are chasing everybody down with whips and guns and things. But it doesn't feel like an all is lost moment and it's too early to be the climax of the story, but it's a very dramatic scene, a big battle almost. The 
second march is a complete anticlimax. They get to the end of the bridge, the state troopers back off. Dr. King gets up and walks back, and it's a, it's an anticlimax. It's almost like a letdown in story terms, and it happens towards the end of the middle build, but it doesn't feel like the all is lost moment. I think I, I think Kim did identify it as the all is lost moment. Then the court decision that clears the way for the final peaceful march is a really quiet, sort of a delayed triumph, and it takes place in a courtroom instead of on the streets. It's not a march. And so the final march takes place kind of effectively after the battle has already been won. Johnson has already said that his um, the Voting Rights Act will be uh, delivered to Congress. He's made his This is an American Problem speech. And it's all but certain that this this act will pass. So it's almost like de-escalating complications in the external story. This is not criticism of the movie. It's just an interesting thing to note that if you had had the freedom to create complete fiction, you might not have done it in that order. But that's that was what really happened. And so the uplifting ending, putting that ending on with David Oyelowo delivering that speech, an incredible delivery with the uh, words over the screen telling us what happened to each of these people and what the outcomes was. It was so uplifting that you'd forgive anything. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the cast is is stunning as well. There, there's a lot of uh, modern civil rights leaders in it. And so that was nice to see. Um, I mean, I think this is a movie that, you know, anyone that lives here needs to watch so that we don't fall back really powerfully done. I think that this story is an excellent example of intentional restraint. And what I mean by that is there are no images or dialogue that mentions the Ku Klux Klan, even though they are specifically the perpetrators of the church bombing in the inciting incident that killed the four young girls in Alabama. And I think that this is intentional and strategic and absolutely the right choice for the story. Dr. King mentions the great lie of supremacy, which infects everyone, not just the extremists. And the antagonists here are not the Klan members, but elected officials, the sheriff, the governor, the president, and every person who sits by and allows it to continue. So emitting images and dialogue about the Ku Klux Klan prevents a white audience from opting out by pinning all the blame and evil on extremists that all too often, well, I'm not as bad as that, so I must be fine. So because the story is told in 2014 to an audience that is still dealing with epic racial inequality, this message is highly relevant. And although it's different from, it reminded me of the flagship podcast, Story Grid episode, where Tim's opening scene with the threshing where Jesse attacked the president um, who caught her stealing and she attacks him with a knife or a gun or whatever. And Sean cautioned about going too far too fast and also consider going too far at any time in your story, whether it's sex or violence or backstory, you know, delivering all of the information, you know, be sure that your final story version is a, that every choice that's in it is intentional and that each element in her story enhances the controlling idea and doesn't distract from it. And so here I thought the omission of the extremists and the visual of the white hoods and the burning crosses and all the things that very well may have been in those live events that we didn't see them in the film. And I think that was a, it was something I clearly noted and I mentioned it to my husband and I said, they don't put this in here. And I think it's perfect because it's, 
it allows, well, not only allows, it requires the audience to see it for what it really is and not be distracted by kind of what ends up looking like cartoon characters on a screen. And it really is elected officials and the people who just stand by and do nothing. That's a really good point. And similarly, one of the most powerful scenes in the in a movie full of powerful scenes was that we, we see the young man, is it Jimmy Lee, get murdered. We see him get yes. shot in, in a restaurant. And then instead of, we never see blood. We never see any blood. Mm-hmm. Well, very little, very, very little. And instead of honing in on that violence, we then see Dr. King meeting with the man's grandfather, the young mm-hmm. man's grandfather, at the morgue. Yes. And we barely, we see a glimpse of the body after they have spoken to each other. It's one of the most moving scenes you've ever seen. And it and it brings every human being into the the tragedy and the, the horror and the crime so much more than some bloodshed and more bullets. And, right. and I'm sure there was, there was probably more than one bullet fired in that scene, but but the choice, like you say, very restrained and highly emotional, very effective. Yes. It's wonderful. It seems interesting to use the word restraint in a movie that has bombings and beatings and tear gas and shootings and murders and, and all of these things that are happening. And yet this is the restrained version of that, right? Like we're seeing a we're seeing a very tidy telling that still shows the horrors and yet very clearly shows yeah, the power, the that divide, and who's really responsible. And I just think that that was brilliantly done. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's one of those things where you don't need the violence to be over the top to understand it. You basically, at least from my perspective, they're turning the um, responsibility on the viewer and the responsibility of what's happening to people that are just like you. The, the violence is there because it's accurate, but it's not overemphasized, which is brilliant. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Kim, and Leslie, for your excellent editorial insights into Selma. We hope our discussion helps you write a better society historical story. You can find the Fool's Cap and other materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. We'd like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid community to comment, argue with us on our interpretations. And if you have a favorite movie that you'd like us to take a look at, suggest it on Twitter, at StoryGridRT. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit StoryGrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Join us next time when we again trace the outlines of the status genre with the 2002 movie Real Women Have Curves, starring America Ferreira. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. 